Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The borders are opening up. Hamilton is getting more transit money. Toyota is an official Olympic sponsor, but they don't want their commercials aired. How do you prepare for a tornado? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Due to America's head is... Oh, no. Hesitancy. Canada now has more people fully vaccinated. Congrats, Team Canada. Imagine where we'd be if we didn't start six months after them. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. You know, I got an interesting note uh, from a listener, and I want to read this to you before we bring in our, our first guest, uh, simply because uh, I think people are trying to stereotype who is not getting the vaccine and, and and who is being hesitant. And let's be honest, as we get to uh, how many is it now? Uh, 69% with one dose, over 55% with two doses, which are exp- extremely uh, high numbers for any country, um, you know, to have at this point, considering in May we had 3% of the people vaccinated for their first dose. So in since May, we have just done gangbusters. And everybody, it's pretty safe to say that everybody who is has not received one is either on the fringe in the sense that they just have no way to get one or they're hesitant. And it's funny because, you know, and this information was coming out of the states, especially when you see the southern United States, who seems to be where the, the Floridas and the Missouris and stuff where there's there's hot spots and people who uh, are not vaccinated. And again, Canada has now passed uh, America in uh, those with the second dose at 55 percent, America closer to 50 percent. Imagine where we'd be if we started at the same time. Um, But anyway, hesitancy is obviously kicked in. And in the States, they've they've, you know, painted them. and, And maybe this is the case as all being conservative. And I'm seeing that up here, uh, that people are painting uh, a picture that it's conservatives that aren't getting vaccinated. And I think that's the biggest pile of, of malarkey I have heard. Uh, because I don't think it has anything to do with sex, your gender. I don't think it has anything to do with your ethnic background. I don't think it has anything to do with your education, because I've met some incredibly intelligent people who want no part of a vaccination. So, again, this is typical, and and I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. I just got a note from a listener. Love the show. How many of the remaining unvaccinated people are hesitant? How many are just plain misinformed who get their news from, uh, and they list some right-wing sources? He said, and why is it that every person that I have met who refuses to get vaccinated all vote conservative? I, I'm, I'm just stunned at this because, again, uh, just this weekend, I met four teachers, a chiropractor, and a massage therapist. And they ain't right-wingers by any means. None of them want anything to do with vaccination. 
You know, it was fascinating. There was a prominent personality, and I don't want to mention their, the name, uh, who, who wrote a, a, on social media. You know, you don't have to ask people if they're vaccinated or not. You just have to vaccinate, or you just have to ask them what political party they vote for, meaning that no conservatives get vaccinated and only liberals do. There was an interesting, another interesting stack that came out prior to us reaching the, the threshold that we have now, where about 60% of us were vaccinated. There was some hesitancy among teachers that only 41% of them had become vaccinated at that stage. So again, I think to characterize people, and I am completely stunned by those that say they are jumping on board and that those that are say they are not jumping on board, because some that I assume that wouldn't are, and some who who I assume just would, are not. But it's amazing how people try to make it political and say one political slant will do it more or less than the other. Because uh, just from the people I've talked to, just from the seven, this is the 70th week we've been covering this stuff uh, since we've been working, you know, from home with the Scott Thompson Home Show. And, you know, it's just, it's incredible how people try to politicize this and make it sound as if some people uh, on that side of the political spectrum aren't getting vaccinated, but those on the other aren't. I would suggest it's extremes on either side of the political spectrum. And I, I don't even know if that's accurate because the people that I've just mentioned to you are not extreme in any way. They've just, but they're all well-educated, professionals, teachers, some, and they, they're not into it. And yet others that, you know, and again, I, I, these are the first people, groups of people that I've, I've chatted to this weekend who I've met who aren't vaccinated. Everyone else who I hang with and, you know, has all talked about it. But it's easy, you know, it's easy to tell in these conversations who's vaccinated and who's not. You don't have to ask. Because if you're talking about it, chances are you are. If people are kind of quiet and they don't really talk about it, chances are they're not. That's sort of the rule of thumb that I've noticed. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. My, my family's fully vaccinated. So, you know, if you're not, that's fine. I don't hate you because of that. You've all got your reasons for doing so. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, to say it's this segment of the population or that segment of the population where, whether it's based on gender, whether it's based on ethnicity, whether it's based on social, uh, economic status, uh, or political, uh, parties is just absolutely absurd. It's just absolutely absurd. And, you know, maybe there's some truth to that in a very divided place like the United States where there only is two parties to choose from. Um, but no, I, I think it is categorically wrong to say that liberals are not anti-vaxxers. I think that is incorrect to say. All right, uh, let's move on. It is 1240. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. And if you want to be a part of this, please free, uh, feel free to send us a note. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Doctor, as this uh, goes on, it is almost turn. Uh, you know, it's gone from a pandemic to a social experiment uh, of sorts. When we talk to uh, people who are into vaccination, people who aren't, and can we categorize it? Because I have been completely surprised by people who I thought would be in, who are out. People I thought would be out would be in. Uh, can you categorize this? There's certain people that aren't into it, certain people that are. I, I mean, I just I think it's crossing all 
all sorts of uh, stereotypes. I agree. I mean, I think it's depending on people's preference. We're seeing a big sort of diversity in the opinions around COVID-19 pandemic and the way we've handled it. So I think a big population of people say the pandemic is right now over, while you still have people who are skeptical or saying that we might be heading down to another lockdown. So I think it depends on who you talk to. And I appreciate your earlier comments about the liberals versus the conservatives and that not one party, we can paint a brush over the entire party. So what I mean by that is not not all liberals are pro-vaccine and there are, you know, there is diversity in our population. So it's important to keep that in mind as we move forward. So your thoughts on where we are and specifically about passing the United States, uh, 69% with one, 55 plus with two. And considering we're at 3% in May, that's incredible. That is incredible. So this is great news all around. So I think that, you know, overall we're doing quite well. Our ICU cases are, are almost non-existent. The death rate has been low. The case numbers have been low. However, I will caution there is some concerns. You know, we just reopened things up to a wider scale. So what I'm trying to say here is that let's not celebrate too early. Let's wait and see what happens because, you know, this weekend and in the next coming weeks, we're going to see more people meeting together in, in indoor spaces, possibly without a mask at some point. And so that is going to maybe create a higher case numbers. Uh, in the U.S., what's happening is that people just stopped getting vaccinated, for the lack of better yeah. words. They've hit vaccine hesitancy at its peak. And people just stopped wanting to get vaccinated and they've opened things up so fast. I, I actually believe from a perspective, from a policy perspective, they probably regret their decision. And what I mean by that is the Biden administration made very uh, bold statements saying you no longer need to wear a face mask if you've been vaccinated, trying to align themselves with CDC. However, and I think part of the reasons they did that was they were trying to provide an incentive for people to get vaccinated. However, nobody did. People, the majority of people did not take that incentive. And so they're faced now with a big issue, Scott, which is that the case numbers in the U.S. is going very alarmingly high um, and people not getting vaccinated. And I suspect they will be coming to a lockdown again. Ah, wow. Um, If that happens, uh, is that what it will take to sort of get through this wall of vaccine hesitancy that they have? Because they've sort of uh, leveled out here and and have literally stayed there. Does that mean these people are dug in or can there is there more uh, can more education still sway some of these people? You know, prevention and education from health population perspective works best at the early onset. And it's very hard to create behavior change later on. And so right now, you know, they're doing damage control. I mean, we saw that the Biden administration was trying to appeal to younger demographic by recruiting a young actress who speaks to Generation Z, the millennials, and didn't really work. Like, you know, there is, they're, they're faced with a blockade. And also, Scott, I mean, think about human behavior, right? Things opened up now. People are thinking in the U.S. most likely, like, why should I get vaccinated? Things are back to normal. Yeah. And so it, how do you do that, right? Like, that's the difficulty. This is what we're learning about had our response to this pandemic is that slow and steady wins the race uh, because, you know, the, soon, the, the sooner you go on fast reopening, it ends up not working out well. And we have examples around the world. So for us Canadians, perhaps, I mean, nobody can say with certainty at this point, but perhaps our approach of being the country with the longest lockdowns, I mean, you hear this all over the news, or one of the countries that had the longest lockdowns so of any country in the world might actually have served us better. Uh, I mean, it wasn't fun. None of us enjoyed this. But in the long term, this could have actually resulted in us getting the, putting the pandemic behind us. 
Uh, infections increasing in other parts of the world uh, due to hesitancy as ours numbers continue to uh, go through the roof, our vaccination numbers. Um, so are, are we concerned about what's happening in these other parts who may have to readjust their policy? Does it, it, does it matter to us as long as we're vaccinated? Great question. I'll tell you right now, we're watching very closely the UK. This is a country that had tremendous high levels of vaccination rates and now is facing some of the highest numbers they've had. I mean, the UK numbers of COVID-19, is it's quite alarmingly scary. Why? Because the UK announced freedom is what they called it, which is that, you know, they, they, they are having mass celebrations throughout the country. Their people are not wearing masks indoor. They practically announced that they're going to go back to normal life as they knew it before the pandemic. However, the pandemic still exists. They are very much in effect in high case numbers. We're also looking at the U.S. very closely and seeing the same tendency. Will we be different in Canada? Possibly because our vaccination rate in terms of double vaccine is much higher. We also have higher rates of people vaccinated against the, with Pfizer and Moderna. That might play in effect. We can't say with certainty how our outcomes will look. We have to keep in mind that we've only now starting to reopen things on a bigger scale like those other countries that are now witnessing the effect. What I'm trying to say here, Scott, is that I am very consciously alarmed that, you know, we might be facing a situation similar to those countries if we don't keep going slow and steady with this and testing things as we go along. Uh, so uh, really, and, and what's happened at this point is they're reopening without as many vaccinated as what we have. You know, once it's, once people, it seemed once numbers got close to 50%, then they started opening up. Whereas for us, it's, you know, obviously 70% and 55% fully vaccinated. Um, vaccination doesn't necessarily mean you can open that quickly. They may pay the price for that now. Exactly. And I think this is a lesson for us so that, you know, we're doing great with vaccinations. Please get vaccinated if you wish to do so. Please, you know, make sure that you encourage others to get vaccinated if you're so comfortable doing so. I think that's part of one tool helping us get ahead of this pandemic. The other one is that we can't relax our public health interventions. I mean, we saw some really stark statements being made by CDC to people asking them to, again, wear face masks. There are parts of the U.S. now where the mandate to wear face masks is back in effect. Um, and so I think that, you know, we can't get used to not wearing face masks. It sucks. None of us really like it, for the lack of better words. You know, we all don't want to be wearing face masks for the majority of us. However, we can need to continue doing that even if we're double vaccinated, because what I don't want to see happening is for us to go into severe lockdowns like we've had in the past. Uh, obviously, more chatter about opening the U.S. border. The prime minister has suggested that uh, mid-August for fully vaccinated those in the U.S. in September, uh, internationally. How concerned are you that although our rates are as high as they are, theirs are still hovering around 50%? Does that matter, again, as long as we're vaccinated? Shatter has it actually this decision is made more by the Biden administration than, than Canada's the decision to keep the border closed, to be clear here. Um, and so it's not been shared publicly, but it's been sort of speculated that the U.S. administration is the one behind keeping the borders closed, and we're still waiting to get a confirmation on that. Uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here, too, is that the, 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 the U.S. numbers are quite high now. So I don't know if it is to Canada's advantage to open up the borders quickly. I mean, there's also a reason maybe, maybe that we haven't had a big toll of the variants here is because our international borders have been closed to tour. And so we haven't really opened up the scale that other countries have that are now facing severe problems because of it. We look at Israel, the UK and the US again, and we see examples where when they've opened up too fast, 
you're going to be dealing with a backlash of the vaccine impacting your society. We talked about this, uh, Ahmad, as well last week. And as, of course, our vaccination rates go up and the chatter moves to hesitancy, I cannot believe the amount of debate is that is going on in social media, whether it's splitting up friends or dividing families or coworkers or what have you, uh, in regard to people, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated or such. Any advice for... Uh, for uh, people that are out there, perhaps that are fully vaccinated uh, and have friends or family or what have you that aren't any. Do, do we socialize with them? Can we can we treat them like normal people? I mean, it's amazing how this has separated some families. I mean, it's not only separated some families it has separated countries and societies yeah. and the effect of this will come for years to come. So, you know, Scott, I'll share an example with you this weekend. I was invited to a friend's backyard dinner. Uh, very much within social interventions, practices in line. And the first question I wanted to ask when I got there to everybody that was there when there was about six people was, is everybody double vaccinated? Can I remove my mask safely? And I knew I couldn't ask that because I'm breaching on people's personal sort of freedom of choice and their confidentiality. I mean, your health status and your health information is confidential. Mm -hmm. And you are not obliged to share that. However, because I was in this private space of somebody else, I was so happy that the host checked if everybody was double vaccinated to make mm-hmm. sure that we, we all felt comfortable being there. And the reason why I'm sharing that is that, that this is one example if, if you're trying to navigate this conversation. I don't believe there is one standard model. I think every individual has to make that decision on their own. I think that, you know, if you are in your own home, you have the right to ask people for, you know, whether, whether it's a safe socialize with them if they've been double vaccinated. And so that is, I think, up to individuals, but there is no standard of rule. And I'll tell you, the further we go along in this pandemic, there is a concern that it's dividing societies and communities. You know, there's, there's one aspect we keep talking about here, Scott, which is people's choice to get vaccinated or not. But there's also the other element that we never really talk about. Some people might not be able to get vaccinated for many reasons. Could be mm-hmm. health concerns, they could be pregnant and don't want to get vaccinated because they're worried about the impact it has on the fetus for whatever reason that could be. We need to respect that it's not as easy as they choose not to get vaccinated. There could be other factors in play. And so we have to navigate this conversation very sensitively. And and again, just to uh, reiterate how we started this conversation, it, it doesn't seem like, like you can't stereotype these people in yeah. any way. It, it's it's literally every walk of life. It doesn't matter if you're educated or or not or or what have you. It, it just it, it it it's surprising how many people have such a strong uh, position on this. Yes, and it's it's similar to how people vote in elections. People have yeah. different viewpoints based yeah. on their backgrounds and education level socioeconomic status. I mean, we spend years of research studying how people vote and what political party they belong to. We're seeing the same thing with COVID-19 and vaccine. A lot of factors are involved in making that decision and not one person is identical to other. Look at your own family members. Is everybody in your family feel the exact same way about vaccines or the COVID-19 pandemic? Probably not. They probably have different viewpoints on it. You might agree on some, but not everything. And the same can be said about our own population. So we need to be kind to one another. I think we need to be careful with the conversations we're having. We need to not impose our opinions onto others. And if you're worried about your safety and your security, which you're entitled to, then you can practice things in place. So do not get in gatherings where you suspect people are not 
having the same beliefs as you in terms of, their, of protecting their health. You know, keep wearing your face mask, keep social distancing, keep using sanitization and hand hygiene practices. Those are ways that you can protect yourself and your loved ones. And, and the choice to make it onto others sort of is left to them to make that choice. So politics, religion, and now we'll add mm-hmm. vaccine to those things that you should never discuss in certain yeah, situations. Exactly. There you go. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. The commentary is coming up. When this pandemic first started, we couldn't hear enough about a COVID-19 vaccine. The reason we didn't have any. When will one be invented? Who will make the vaccine? Where will it come from? How long will it take for Canadians to get it? These were all questions of the day no one had answers to in a global pandemic we knew nothing about. Lockdowns, protocols, working and schooling from home, families of bubbles that had no contact with the outside world were the story of the day. For a year and a half, we watched other parts of the world get vaccinated and open up. Finally, once Canada's vaccine supply arrived in mass in May, the question turned to, how can I get one? Who qualifies? How long before I can get one? Now, after supply is here, it's about hesitancy. Do you have a vaccine? Why don't you have a vaccine? Why are you not getting a vaccine? As this conversation has divided the workplace, the home, the family, or out and about with friends. It's amazing how a country that at one time was in great need of a COVID-19 vaccine is now tired of hearing about it and the divisions it has caused. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Great news for the hammer over and above uh, Hamilton's LRT uh, project this morning. It was a big Hamilton Transit announcement. Catherine McKenna uh, in town and with us now, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great. Always happy to be back in Hamilton. And it's always great when you come here and you bring us stuff. Uh, you know, I, know I think I'm generally making some good announcements. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, you, you know, we, we all have ridden through the LRT, uh, the ride before the actual uh, infrastructure is built, and we all know where that has gone. And, boy, it, it was great to see all levels of government coming together and, and working on this project. It seems like we're at a, a different point in Canada's future here, where it seems like everybody's getting involved doesn't matter uh you know what the political party is or or what have you but it, it, this is when stuff gets done is when everyone rows in the same direction well i totally agree um it, it look it's time for lrt we're making major transmit announcements across the country um and we need jobs uh, so this is a shovel ready project been discussed for a long time uh and um it was great that the you know the city I, they still have you know the mou to do with the province but the city uh they seem to be keen you've got uh, the province stepped up and certainly the federal government is there and uh, today's announcement was just part of our commitment to Hamilton and public transit, $200 million um, in the invested in the A-line, um, as well as so more buses, uh, which is good for folks, as well as uh, bus uh, maintenance and storage area. You need those if you're going to have uh, for your transit systems and also um, active transportation, so cycling paths. So, look, we're all in. Uh, Hamilton is ambitious when it comes to public transit, and, and we're certainly all in to support that. 
Uh, obviously, uh, Hamilton has a very unique situation in the sense that it has an upper city and a lower city, has the escarpment uh, dividing the city, and sometimes divides some of the politics. Uh, what can we do to best join A to B? You talked about the A line and such. How can we how can we torque up connectivity between uh, the mountain and the lower city? Well, look, so I'm from Hamilton, uh, and so I know all about uh, Hamilton's geography. I uh, spent a lot of time uh, you know, here over the past few years. But the good news is there's already a plan. It's the city's plan. It's the BLAST, uh, it's the, the, the blast plan, which is, of course, um, it includes the LRT, uh, the B-Line. Um, and the good news is we're funding the full line. That was really important. I, I know to folks, but also the A-line. That's the waterfront to the airport. So with these investments, we're connecting Hamilton, whether it's the lower city to the mountain, the waterfront to the airport, east, west, north, south. That's critically important. And I, and I just want to emphasize that the, um, the reality is that, uh, you know, great cities have great public transit. And the folks that take public transit uh, they're seniors, uh, they're, you know, kids, uh, students going to school. Uh, they're often new immigrants. Um, they're people who can't afford other options, but we need to make transit an irresistible option because um, we got to tackle climate change too. We've seen uh, this summer uh, huge fires out west. Hundreds are burning right now, and the town of Lytton literally burned down. Um, and so we need to take serious action on climate change, and we need jobs. So this is also about jobs. I saw some HR, HSR folks talking to them, uh, talk to the union folks, because good union jobs are really important, too. Uh, you talked about uh, the waterfront to the airport. And again, if you go back, you're talking about your history in Hamilton. You, you go back 100, a couple hundred years ago, this was all part of it. I mean, you know, you could uh, uh, take uh, whatever sort of transportation to an incline railway, take it down the escarpment and then get on a ferry and go somewhere. Can you elaborate and give us any more information on, on what the project waterfront to the airport, what that's going to entail? Well, you know what? The, I, I, one thing I've learned um, is that cities are best at designing their own transit. So um, this is part of the, the what I can say. This is part of the blast strategy. Yeah. Um, so the A line rapid transit corridor is really important. Um, so that's why they need new buses. They need bike paths, sidewalks, um, so that it makes it uh, just you know improves the connectivity. And so, you know, people sometimes in the LRT discussion, it was a lot about, well, we need to think about North-South. I get it. That's exactly, you know, what this investment is in the A-line. Um, but we also need it East-West. Uh, I think how great it is if you're a student or someone who's got to go to McMaster uh, University or the, the hospital, get on the, you'll be able to get on LRT to get there um, with great stops along the way. So I'm just excited about investments in Hamilton. You know, the city has done a great job with the BLAST strategy, and we're happy. The mayor actually said every single uh, ask that the, the city had in terms of public transit, we've, we've stepped up and we've invested in. Any idea as far as a timeline in this money? When all of the does this happen at the same time as the LRT? Uh, give it, can you give us any sort of uh, timeline at all? Well, I, the LRT, so the, I know the province is working hard on the Memorandum of Understanding. The mayor is hopeful that that will come. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful as soon as possible, but August or um, worst case, early September. Um, I know for this announcement, um, we heard uh, from, the, from the city um, that they're already in the planning phase for much of this. Um, and so I think that the plan is to move fast. I'm like a person of action. Let's not take forever. We have this money. We need to invest it. 
Uh, we need jobs now. As we know, we've been in not only in a health crisis, but an economic crisis, and people need great transit. Uh, speaking about getting things done, uh, there was chatter last week uh, about a high-speed or high-efficiently line. I, I'm not sure exactly how they categorized it between southern Ontario and Quebec. I'm old enough to remember them talking about this way back in the 70s. Uh, is, is this going to go? Is this the future? Uh, have we missed this train, per se? Uh, no, we're uh, we're very committed to seeing the high frequency uh, train get built. Uh, I agree. A lot of these projects, but I mean Hamilton LRT. There's a lot of discussion for that, yeah. as you know, over a long time. That's the same ab- about the major public transit investments that we're making in Toronto. So it's part of the the deal that we reached with the province. Uh, actually, getting things done is really important. And now more than ever, you know, we have we have to invest. Um, infrastructure has huge returns. Every dollar is is basically worth five dollars to the economy. It creates good jobs and tackles climate change. So we are going to get this done. Um, I think that it's well past due. Uh, we need better public transit, not only within cities but between cities. And we got to get cars off the road. So uh, two, uh, I've just said that uh, you know, as long as I'm in this role, I'm going to continue pushing uh, to get investments in in Canada's future because that's really what it is. Um, uh, many. What I oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, what do I hope? Because people are like, you know, you, you do this job. Like, what I hope is in a. Uh, a decade from now, people, you know, even have a dad and a daughter uh, riding, say, to LRT in Hamilton and saying, how did this ever get done? And the dad will be like, well, there's this terrible pandemic. Um, you know, you wouldn't believe it. Kids weren't in schools and, uh, you know, it, you know, pe- people lost jobs and people were dying. But guess what? People said we're going to build back better. And that's how we got this done. So <laughs> we got to get these things done. We got to move forward. And I'm just really proud that we're working with the city and the province. It's not always easy conversations, but we're actually moving forward. Uh, lots of campaign-style announcements being made. Uh, many are saying this is the even of, of an election. This is the sort of announcements that are made. Any response to that? Uh, look, for my infrastructure program, we make advancements all the time. Uh, I have been absolutely 100% focused in getting uh, shovels in the ground. Um, so these announcements uh, have been worked on um, by the city, by the province, and they take time to come to fruition. But I, we've announced more than 3,000 projects since the pandemic started, $10 billion in my department. Um, this is really about getting things built. It's not about an election. It's about getting good things built. And that's been my focus from the start, uh, getting you know, these taxpayer dollars out the door so we can create jobs, so we can tackle climate change, so we can build more inclusive uh, communities. Uh, Catherine, you announced earlier on you weren't going to run for re-election. Uh, any second thoughts there? Want to see this stuff through? Uh, look, I, uh, I ha- I've had a great run. Uh, I've loved every minute of it. Well, maybe not every single minute, but most minutes of hmm. it. And, uh, you know, I, I started this and my kids were uh, four, six, eight. Um, now my youngest is, is 12. Uh, my eldest is going to university in a year. It's time to spend more time with them. Um, but it's also, I, I think it won't come as a surprise to anyone, but climate change is the biggest issue. And we've got a plan here um, that the rest of the world has to do exactly what Canada's doing. Put a price on pollution. They need to phase out coal. They need to make massive investments in clean infrastructure. And so that's really, I, I actually, am, that is what I want to do. I want to help, um, you know, because this is the biggest challenge. And uh, I think there's probably some things I could do internationally to, 
to move the world forward on this. And, and hopefully, you know, in the end, we have to tackle climate change, um, but we're going to need a lot more discipline to do that. Uh, last question, Catherine. Um, uh, obviously, you know what a rough and tumble world this can be uh, in politics. Uh, there's certainly lots of evidence of that. Uh, any advice for those who are contemplating replacing you, being inspired by you, uh, whether male or female, specifically female? Any advice for those wanting to get into politics? Uh, well, especially for women and girls, absolutely 100% do it. Um, you know, there are going to be, so there's going to be some negativity. Um, but the reality is most Canadians are absolutely reasonable. I remember Jean Chrétien saying to me, and he's, uh, he was a mentor of mine. Uh, he still is. He said, like, Canadians are reasonable, be reasonable. And I've found that people have really had my back on this. And you can make a huge difference in politics. Um, so if you have a reason to run, like, there's things you want to get done, especially in your community, um, then do it. Step up. I will support you. Um, I've always said you got to run like a girl, um, and uh, I did it my own way in politics. I think I tried to keep positive, but uh, I think I was pretty tough and tried to get things done. So it's um, it's awesome, but politics matters, and that's the one thing we always have to remember. Um, I know people, even if you're not going to run, believe in politics because that is how decisions get made. That's how look at where we are when it comes to uh, vaccines. We had a huge crisis. Uh, we, you know, the federal government working with the provinces and municipalities supported Canadians through the crisis. We're getting out of it. We're one of the top, I think, if not the top country when it comes uh, to Canadians getting vaccinated. So I think it's just so important. Um, and I really, I, I'm not leaving because uh, people drove me out. You know what? Haters going to hate. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm just glad I got some other things I got to do, but um, I will be supporting women and girls uh, going forward, and I will call out the bad behavior and negativity, and I will push social media companies to do more because that's going to happen. Uh, Catherine, obviously you got a busy afternoon. Anything you can say as far as your agenda moving forward this afternoon, specifically in regard to the Woodland Cultural Center? Yeah, I mean, today's announcement is uh, this is a very uh, important announcement, uh, I know, to uh, to the community, the Indigenous community, um, that uh, obviously it's been a really uh, traumatic time for Indigenous peoples, but also a wake-up call for Canadians uh, when it comes to uh, the, the discovery of so many remains at these former residential schools. So, um, I'm going to be at the Woodland Cultural Center. They've done an amazing job. I had a chance to visit it. Um, I came uh, with my kids to Hamilton. We all we, we went to see uh, the Cultural Center uh, a few weeks ago. And it's just an amazing place where, yes, you have the story of residential schools, and it is a story that we need to confront as Canadians. But they also tell the amazing story uh, of Indigenous peoples and First Nations and the, the connections that they have with the land, some of the amazing uh, leaders that they have, um, the whole history uh, of Indigenous peoples, which I did not learn about. Uh, I didn't learn about in any of my schools, whether it was mm. in, uh, it was, you know, at my primary school or in law school. <laughs> so uh, I'm just really happy that we're able to support the community um, when it comes to Woodland Cultural Center, because it's also a way that they can, you know, tell the story of residential schools to Canadians, but also talk about all the positive things that, that you know, First Nations have contributed and continue to contribute to Canadian society.
Catherine McKenna has been with us, Ottawa Centre MP, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, uh, Government of Canada investing over $200 million on more tra- uh, transit projects. That's over and above the LRT project. Catherine, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's great. I love the hammer. I'm always happy to come back. And a big hi to everyone. It's Everyone in Hamilton's been very supportive of me, too, so I really appreciate it. And best of luck to you in the future, whatever you decide to do moving forward. Thanks so much. Everyone stay tuned. Stay tuned. Tackling climate change and hanging out with my kids. <laughs> Catherine McKenna with his Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Companies pay big time bucks, big time uh, money to get a a front and center sponsorship while everybody is watching the Olympics. One of those sponsors is Toyota and uh, heavily involved in uh, the the Tokyo Games and uh, the Olympic movement. And now they have pulled their Olympic themed commercials from Japan's airwaves, despite being a major sponsor of the event, and this is due to the negative feedback that uh, the Tokyo Games are getting within Japan itself. So has it got to the point where Olympics are bad press? To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ian Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well. Thanks, uh, Scott. This is, I find, fascinating because I've sort of watched the Olympic movement over over the years and was fortunate enough to witness it in Calgary in the uh, in, in 1988 and such. Uh, and this was obviously a, a big prize to not only be awarded the Olympics, but even be one of the, quote, official sponsors. Are you surprised that we've got Toyota here, who is obviously spending a, a great deal of money for this, but not taking full advantage of it? Yeah, it shows... I mean, it's, it's fascinating because, on the one hand, companies, big companies, large companies, multinationals, um, are becoming more and more and more and more sensitive about what's uh, sometimes called corporate social responsibility, uh, sometimes called environmental and social responsibility. They're variations on a theme. And what, what is so fascinating is if you listen to, and I'm just, we're, we're in Canada and we're, we talk about Canada, you listen to the political rhetoric and it's going in one direction from the reality of what's going on in the real world. You know, they talk about yeah. the big, bad, you know, pharmaceutical companies and big, bad manufacturing companies that don't care, give a damn about their customers. And for anybody who actually knows what they're talking about, and I'm excluding, obviously, our elected officials of all parties, uh, and I'm not picking on any one party, they, if you one studies this, and there are lots of academics studying ESG, uh, which is environmental um, and social governance, and corporate social responsibility has just become a veritable cottage industry of research in the universities, uh, including my own. And um, one discovers very quickly that uh, corporations are investing uh, very large amounts of money in this whole area of being a good corporate citizen, of being ethical in every possible way. The old days that they would tolerate, you know, Bad behavior today, the moment there's a whisper about you in the corporate world, you're fired, you're bounced out the door. Um, and in this instance, because of the problems uh, related to COVID over the Olympics, Toyota has decided, even though they're paying enormous amounts of money as a sponsor of the Olympics, they've decided to flush their investment down the toilet. I mean, I don't know the exact hundreds of millions that they have spent as a sponsor, uh, I don't know if it's broken a billion or not. I know they're uh, one of the major sponsors. But um, they're clearly, uh, the whole point of sponsoring is then you run ads. 
uh, on yeah. all the shows during the Olympics, saying, look at how good we are, we're sponsoring the Olympics. So by pulling their ads, they're going to get absolutely no return on their investment. So why would they do something so radical? Well, because they believe that the, the, uh, the negativity... The bad PR, the bad, uh, the, the, the criticism and, and all the negative, uh, uh, conversations going on around the Olympics are not worth the very large amount of money that they paid. So companies are, contrary to what politicians say that these, the, these corporations don't care one iota about you and I, it's precisely and exactly the opposite. They just don't know what they're talking about. I'm sorry for being so blunt. It's just that I've spent a ton of time researching this for the last two, three years. It comes up in my classes all the time with students. And, and corporations are especially big. The bigger the corporation, the more uh, sensitive they are and the more money they will spend on corporate social responsibility to make sure that they're acting absolutely ethically and responsibly and environmentally sound way and that there's no racism tolerated and that they're promoting minorities and so forth. They become very, very sensitive on these questions. And the Toyota decision today is really just a good example of what I'm saying. So uh, what, how would the IOC react to this? Because uh, obviously, uh, does this devalue the value of a sponsorship? Would they get a discounted rate? Uh, and where does this put the That's IOC moving forward? Asking. It, it depends whether there's a clause in their sponsorship agreement. I know that with, and it's not the same thing now, we're talking companies and a international nonprofit association called the IOC. So they're entities, they're institutions. But I do know that when athletes sign contracts with Nike, um, they, uh, and with the NFL teams themselves or NHL teams or NBA teams, there's a morals clause there now. And uh, that allows them to void the contract if you do something uh, uh, that is deemed to be inappropriate. And we're not talking about swearing and a four-letter, you know, saying one four-letter cuss word once. We're talking about somebody who's been charged with sexual assault or or violence. Um, and there was an NFL player, a very good player, who was just bounced out of the NFL just four days ago uh, because charges were laid against him. He has not gone to court. He has not been convicted yet. That I said, that's too bad. You're gone. You're done. And, and so where I'm going with this is that ethos, if I can call it that, is um, becoming common in, with large corporations and international bodies. So one of the greatest risks today for a corporation or an IOC or the NFL or any of these uh, large bodies could be the FIFA for the soccer, could be the NHL. It's not limited to one sport. I don't want anyone to think that. In all these large organizations that uh, have very popular sports where the cash flows are in the billions, not the millions, the billions, the risks are going up all the time. And whenever there's a scandal of any kind, it doesn't matter if it's a sexual scandal or if it's an environmental scandal that they're using, you know, maybe some people that were slaves in a developing country uh, or they were exploited incredibly badly. It doesn't matter. FIFA ran into a huge scandal. They just purged everybody out of head office relating to uh, kickbacks on, on advertising yeah. contracts. Uh, you know, the next time it's COVID. The next time it's uh, someone gets charged with sexual assault of an employee. It doesn't matter. They won't tolerate it. And uh, so today, the IOC and the NFL and the NHL and the FIFAs and the so forth, are, uh, they, spend, they have an army of people to make sure that their brand is as spotless, as uh, clean as a whistle can be. And the moment somebody or something steps in to tarnish or besmirch 
their brand and reputation, they will they will do everything possible to uh, put huge amounts of daylight between themselves and that event. If it's a person, they dump that person so far, and he becomes persona non gratis. Um, you know, in this instance, Toyota is pedaling in the opposite direction away from the Olympics, and uh, so every corporate, every entity seems to learn this very slowly. FIFA took a huge candle for them to clean up their horrible messes. And the NFL, we know with them, with the concussions. And at first they denied it. Yeah. And they denied Black Lives Matter. And they handled the Kaepernick, Kaepernick, the quarterback, very badly. So the moral of the story is there's no tolerance today for anything, whether it's a mishandling of COVID or public safety or uh, sexual morals uh, or, or financial corruption uh, or money laundering, doesn't matter. It, you're so is this, is this an, an, alarm, uh, an anomaly for the Olympics? In other words, it will only happen this time because of the pandemic. I mean, we certainly remember how cities would, would bend over backwards to get these games, the amount of money, yeah. and so yeah. on and so forth. And now, obviously, cities are rethinking that because it's, yeah. it's, it's taking yeah. too much money. Same you thing for to- sponsorships. Are these sponsorships as valuable as they once were? I think you've asked a very important question. Um, it's the strategic question. I teach my strategy class, so this is the kind of question we deal with. And, and I've been arguing without data, okay? I'm, I'm a data guy, you know, I always quote data, so I want to sharply de- demark or when I'm not talking with data. And right now, I'm, this is more speculative what I'm going to say to you. But the sponsorships have become so large. And the viewership uh, has gone down depending, unless it's in a, um, in the two prime markets, which is North America and Europe, uh, from advertising point of view, I'm not being ethnocentric. The advertising dollars come overwhelmingly from European and North American companies. So when they've discovered that when they have a, a FIFA World Cup or a, um, a, a Olympics in a country, for example, in Asia or somewhere else in a very different time zone, it, it is very uh, hard on the on their revenue stream, and um, uh, so where I'm going with this is I think there is probably a rethink going on um, in the IOC and the sponsorships uh, because the costs are so great, the risks seem to go up all the time. Whether it's risk from doping and using uh, performance enhancing drugs or mistreatment, sexual mistreatment of the athletes, or corruption by the host city that's happened at Sochi in Russia. I mean, there's just so much that can go wrong. And the money, Scott, we're not talking a couple of million dollars. It's in the mega billions. And when the money gets that big, it just seems to, it's just like flies to honey on a hot Mm. day. I mean, you just can't seem to keep them away. And and so there's inevitably something that's going to go wrong because it attracts a certain percentage of people that are, shall we say, uh, not completely um, scrupulous. And and so some of these advertisers, I'm thinking like a Toyota, which is a multi-billion-dollar company, may say, you know, this isn't worth the candle. We we can get better bang for our advertising dollar, and they're always asking this question in advertising in the marketing people: uh, Are we getting bang for buck? Are we getting full value for our marketing investment? And mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only two weeks, roughly, two weeks, mm. once every four years, and they're paying out staggering amounts of money. And I've got to believe that they are hiring consultants who are trying to estimate the actual number of eyeballs who saw the Olympics, who saw their ads, and whether or not it moved the needle on sales, because that's why you do this. And so, so is this just a backlash for Toyota in Japan? They've pulled their ads in Japan, or will they, same thing across uh, other countries? Will this be an international thing, or it's just irritated the people in Japan, and, and we'll just worry about that? 
That's a very, very good point. Uh, Japan is a first world country, very high income country. Toyota's huge in Japan, of course. Um, because I've taught in developing countries around the world, people may not realize this. Toyota is huge in the Middle East. In countries mm-hmm. in the Middle East, it's way bigger than any American company. Huge in Africa. And, um, and they're, they're truly a multinational around the globe, around the world. And, uh, so whether or not they pull, that's what I'm going to be watching for. To answer your question, are they going to yank their ads in Europe? Are they going to yank their ads in the Middle East? Are they going to yank their ads in, in Africa? I don't know yet. Uh, if they think they can, it's just a Japanese problem, they can contain it to Japan, well, then they'll be able to salvage uh, some of their, their, their investment, their marketing investment. And it's an investment when you spend half a billion or a billion dollars in advertising. You're investing in getting more sales down the road. So it's going to be very interesting to see if they're going to just keep the uh, kill the advertising in Japan or do it worldwide. But your larger question, I think there's a rethink going on in some of these large, very large corporations about whether the investment in the Olympics is worth the uh, is the bang for buck there. I think there's got to be questions being asked in some of these boardrooms uh, and in some of the uh, by some of the CEOs around the world of the largest corporations. Obviously, a pandemic is, uh, you know, we still don't know how this is going to affect us and, and will probably take years to figure out. I'm going to completely blindside you here with, with another issue here that, that I stumbled across over the weekend and I'd love to get your opinion on. Uh, obviously, we watched uh, Richard Branson uh, take off into space and such, uh, Elon Musk, Bezos going up uh, a little later in the week. I'm seeing a lot of uh, uh, posts on social media about people just uh, crapping all over these guys because of their extravagance. Is this a disdain for wealth? Is this a disdain for pushing the frontier? I mean, I know this isn't exactly exploration uh, type stuff, but it certainly does contribute to the world. What are your thoughts when you hear people just, you know, crap all over them because they're riding their money into space? My judgment, my interpretation, if I can put it that way, is that it is seen by many people, and this is a judgment on my part, I don't have data for this, that it's seen by many people as essentially very conspicuous consumption. What That's what it was called in the late 1800s with the robber barons of New York um, and uh, you know the first robber barons, uh, Rockefeller that founded uh, Exxon, uh, Standard Oil, which became Exxon, uh, or Andrew Carnegie that founded U.S. Steel, or the Mellon family, that, who are still incredibly wealthy family in uh, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. These were the, the first billionaires in the history of the world. And they went and built these incredible mansions in Newport Beach and in New York City, just incredible, bragging about their wealth, you know, basically showing, hey, look at how rich I am. And I think that many people see this as, regardless of what they claim, regardless of what Richard Branson says or what Jeff Bezos says, I think they, a lot of people see it as unnecessary, over-the-top, needless, conspicuous consumption. Look, I can spend a billion bucks or whatever it is, half a billion bucks. Do so does say, this advance society or is it a waste of time? Well, I wouldn't say it's a waste of time because, you know, uh, and I, I really believe this. I know people won't like me what I'm saying for saying it because it's really a variation on trickle-down. But if you go back and look at uh, many, many, many technologies in the last hundred years, they started out as, as technologies only used by the upper class. Mm-hmm. I mean, Windows. <laughs> we just take for granted Windows. Well, once upon a time, rich people had Windows. 
and electricity. I've read the story of the electrification of North America. And it was it was only rich people and presidents and prime ministers and corporations that had electricity. We didn't even electrify rural Canada and the United States until the 1930s. And, and you know, and look at computers when computers first came out. The idea that someone on welfare went and got were buying computers when they first came out is nonsense. So my point being that these technologies that emerge, they, there's early adopters. Think of the $100,000 Tesla. And so rich people buy them, and then they popularize them. And, and I'm not trying to say to justify this. I mean, Rich Bezos can spend his money on whatever he wants to spend it on. He doesn't need my approval. Uh, but uh, I do think that one of the consequences of this is they've spent a whole bunch of money developing this rocket and Branson, his airplane. And there will be spin-off technologies that come out of this, just like there were spin-off technologies out of the space race, uh, the, the man-to-the-moon race. People don't realize that. I've actually read a book once that documented all of the technologies that became yeah. part of consumer life ordinary us consumers that came out of the research uh, to put the man on the moon in 1968. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm sure there'll be spin-off technologies. That's not the justification. That's just simply pointing out that this is one of the outcomes, unintended consequences of these uh, very, very, very wealthy people spending their money in a rather ostentatious way. Ian Lee has been with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about everything from Olympic sponsorship to rich people in space. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Going to play you a report here uh, in regard to uh, damage and the tornadoes that uh, touched down in the Barrie area uh, last week. The project says the five tornadoes that touched down in Barrie, Zephyr, Little Britain, Lornville, Dwight, and Lake Traverse all had maximum wind speeds in the EF2 range with top winds of up to 220 kilometers an hour. The Barrie tornado was the most devastating with 210 kilometer an hour winds and a track 12 kilometers long and 600 meters wide. It sent 10 people to hospital, displaced 100, and left at least 20 homes uninhabitable. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Let's bring in Stephen Flesfetter, meteorologist with Environment Canada and Climate Change Canada, and with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, good morning. Wow, uh, confirmation over the weekend that uh, not one, but five touchdowns of this tornado. Uh, surprised by that, by the damage that you have seen. Uh, yeah, I, it was. I saw a lot of images, a lot of video. It was... Um, some pretty heart-wrenching images coming out of Barrie, especially. Uh, it's something I hope to never see, but unfortunately it is something that we have happened uh, in southern Ontario. Any idea, Stephen, of once these things have touched down, and again, we're just getting, as we heard in that report, confirmation that there were, in fact, five touchdowns of these tornadoes uh, in that weather event. How long are they on the ground? How long does this path of destruction take? It, you know, it really varies from storm to storm. There are tornadoes that touch down uh, just for, say, tens of seconds, and then there are long-track tornadoes that can last for 30, 40 uh, minutes, uh, even longer sometimes. So it varies significantly from storm to storm. What is it about this specific area that seems to be uh, fruitful when it comes to tornadoes? Because obviously it's not the first time we've heard of something in this area. Geographically, what is it about this area that, that seems to spawn more? Or, or, or is that uh, naive to say that? 
Uh, no, it's not naive to say that. There's a lot of uh, ingredients that are ever-present in southern Ontario. Uh, the Great Lakes offer a lot of low-level moisture, which is necessary for the formation of thunderstorms. Uh, and we happen to be in a part of the country where a lot of Gulf, Me- Gulf of Mexico air, uh, warm, humid air, makes its way up to southern Ontario quite frequently. Again, that's very conducive to the formation of thunderstorms. Uh, and another factor from the Great Lakes is uh, what's called the lake breeze. So just little uh, changes in the wind directions that can help uh, form a little bit more rotation for the storm. All right. Uh, now that uh, obviously and thankfully nobody was was killed during the the Barry events, which again, as you've said, if you've seen the the images, it, it's hard to imagine. Um, but now it's obviously clean up and 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 a briefing on on what we've learned from an event such as this. Um, and, and the chatter moves to preparedness. What can we do, whether it's someone who's with Environment Canada or even just a homeowner? What can we do to be better prepared for these sorts of events? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's always important to stay weather aware. Um, I think most people tend to check the weather in the morning or uh, maybe twice a day uh, just so that they have an idea of like what kind of clothing do I need to wear? Do I need an umbrella or not? Uh, so it's always good to know what is on taps for the day or days, uh, depending on if you're going on a trip up north to cottage country or uh, camping, for example. Um, but then it's also really important to have a plan in place ahead of time. If severe weather does approach you, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go to seek shelter? It's one of the most important things anybody can keep in mind if they're going to be out uh, when storms can form. And, you know, in the summertime, when we have conditions, just as you're explaining, especially when you're around open water and such, it doesn't, these things can transpire quite quickly, can't they? Yeah, it uh, doesn't take too long for a storm to go from run of the mill to severe uh, and you may not have as much heads up as you'd like a lot of the time. That's one of the reasons why I say it's good to have a plan in place so that if you are out by the beach uh, enjoying a, a summer weekend, or for example, if the storm comes near you, you, you should know where you're going to go and what you're going to do so that you're uh, not wasting valuable time to get to safety. We've certainly seen the images uh, of people literally running down into the basement or coming up after uh, the event was over to, to literally a house in shambles, no roof, etc. Let's start with the home. Uh, you know, uh, we got uh, we got those emergency uh, uh, alerts saying that there was uh, tornado activity. Uh, in the area, what do you do when you hear those things? If you're in the house and you know uh, that something's coming, what do you do? Yeah, if you're in the home, uh, the best suggestion, if a basement is available, go down to the basement. It's your best chance in a home, uh, staying low as low as possible in the home. So basement is the preferred uh, area. If a basement isn't available, an interior room, something without windows, so an example could be a washroom or a closet or any kind of interior room so that you can stay as have as many barriers between yourself and the storm. 
And the reason for this, in many occasions, you know, is uh, just the debris and and the the material that is flying around during one of these. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with the tornado, especially, there the storm is producing significant winds that can loft any kind of object off the ground, and that can come crashing through a home. Uh, there were several images from Thursday's storms of uh, two by fours going through car windows, for example, and. Mm. So that's one of the reasons we say get as low as you can. And what if you are out and about and you find that this sort of activity is around you, whether it's on a hike, it's golfing, it's camping, whatever, but you're not you know, in your home where you would normally be? Any advice there? Yeah, again, the best advice is to seek a solid shelter uh, as close as possible. Um, it's always tough if you're out and about, especially if you're out for a hike. Uh, you don't want to be in the trees uh, because they can come down, as we've seen from a lot of the storm damage images. So you want to get away from trees. You want to get away from power lines. Uh, seek shelter as quickly as you can. Uh, if you can't get to a shelter, again, staying low uh, so that you can avoid any fly- flying debris in the air. Um, you just want to do your best to make the best of a bad situation. And what about Environment uh, Canada? What about those that are watching this sort of thing? And, and you know, some heard alert, some didn't. Some said that it was uh, not soon enough. Uh, what do we do to try to protect ourselves from uh, a meteorologist's point of view, from Environment Canada's point of view? Um, again, it is important to always stay weather aware uh, and to have a good weather source available to you. Uh, for the tornado warning, it did. it is a broadcast intrusive warning, so it interrupts any uh, TV, radio programming, and it uh, also goes directly to cell phones in the area. Um, but if you, if you have a severe thunderstorm warning, that does not get uh, broadcast immediately into uh, programming or directly to your phone. So if you have uh, a favorite weather app, uh, oftentimes they'll have the option of sending notifications as soon as the severe thunderstorm warnings are issued. So that's another way that you can help protect yourself. I I think there was something like 100 homes that have had damage. Uh, Obviously, some completely demolished, others just minor damage or such. But um, miraculously, nobody died here. Uh, there certainly were some injuries, and some of them uh, serious, but uh, for the no deaths. Are you surprised at that, or does that say something about the early warnings that that were issued? Uh, given the damage, uh, I'm not surprised that there were injuries, uh, and like you say, thankfully there were no fatalities from this event. Um, as far as the early warning system goes, uh, it's not an exact science, and our team does do its best in every situation to get the warnings out as soon as possible. Um, unfortunately, in this case, it wasn't soon enough for some people. Uh, any advice for the, you, you talked about downloading a weather app, whatever, uh, and, and this gives you a little bit more notification over and above those uh, emergency alerts. Uh, obviously, that's a good idea. Yeah, um, we have our own uh, weather app, WeatherCan. Uh, it's available on Apple and Google Play. Uh, but I know there's a lot of people who use the Weather Networks app, and 
they also have notifications. Uh, they uh, re re uh, or they share our alerts through their app and their website as well. Uh, it's another very popular one. There's no end to the number of weather applications available to people um, to help keep them uh, weather aware and weather prepared. Uh, your thoughts on more of these as the summer progress? It seems to be a bit of an unstable summer, uh, you know, weather-wise, uh, that these things can sneak up at any time, um, as opposed to those long, hot, boring, sunny days of summer that we normally have. We've certainly seen lots of pre- uh, precipitation and, and storms of such nature. Are you predicting more of this or could see more of this uh, through the rest of the summer? Uh, with severe thunderstorms, it's not something that we can project in a long-term uh, yeah. kind of a day-to-day uh, a- analysis. We, at, at best, we can give maybe three days advanced notice about the potential for thunderstorms. But anything beyond that, it really becomes very difficult to say yes or no if storms are going to be popping up. And what have we learned from Barry? I mean, are there lessons to be learned about uh, events such as this? Uh, certainly, we're going to be reviewing uh, how the day progressed, um, and I'm sure that some lessons learned will will come out of that, and hopefully we can put those lessons in place as soon as possible. Stephen Flesfader with us, meteorologist with Environment Canada and Climate Change Canada, talking about long and short-term planning, uh, what goes into tornado preparedness, and what we need to do as individuals to keep abreast of all of this stuff. Stephen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.